Season 12, Episode 108, Walkabout, with Luke Rogue and Andrew Pearce. On this episode, Neil and Dario welcome Luke Rogue and Andrew Pearce to discuss Nicholas Rogue's seminal Australian outback drama, Walkabout. Neil talked to Luke Rogue and Andrew Pearce, a film critic from The Curb in Melbourne, earlier this year to discuss the work of Nicholas Rogue and the impact of the film on Australian cinema and film culture. Also in this episode, Neil and Dario lament recent events in Filmland, particularly the moving of the Bond release date and the Cineworld closure announcement, and discuss just what's going on and just what can be done or what should be done to help cinema survive this existential and very real crisis. On with the show. Welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast. I'm Dario Linares, and down the line, of course, is my good friend, Neil Fox. Neil, how are you doing in the first few weeks of term? I am harried and exhausted. uh, (laughs) Straight straight into the positives, positives. then. (laughs) Um, But uh, I am enjoying the teaching, because it's such a new aspect. You know, like the the sessions with the students are great, um, and I'm really enjoying those. And, yeah, they are still, for this moment making all the other stuff kind of feel worthwhile. I'm also super excited and super happy and super positive because just literally before we came on air, as it were, um, Heavenly Records have, Heavenly Recordings rather, have released the theme tune um, online for people to hear. So yeah, Gweno's amazing theme tune is now available for anybody to enjoy and revel in, uh, not just the podcast listeners, which is very exciting. And for a music geek like myself to have one of the labels I love um, kind of promoting something for the show is, is is very satisfying, I have to say. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I was very excited to see that as well on, on Twitter just before I came on. It's not, you know, we're not afraid of labouring a point when we like something. So, uh, yeah, definitely uh, check that out. And, well, you you do check out the uh, the intro when it comes in for the episode. But, you know, obviously, Gweno is an artist we we really love. And, uh, yeah, just, just wonderful to get you know to, to have that happen for us and and for her to take the time out to to do it and and to get the support from the from the label um in terms of yeah where i am it's it's interesting what you say there just thinking a lot about this when having written the newsletter and sort of made a few notes and and uh, points on this issue within the, the newsletter and then just thinking there actually that the, the positive element maybe i is something i didn't sort of forcefully or reinforced when I was writing but being in the room with the students in welcome week that was almost the break from the stress just remembering what it is that yeah. that we do and and then doing it and get and getting students who to me felt you know really ready to do something I mean you know obviously that we sign up film students and they want to make films and they want to talk about film and you know there was obviously there's always a little bit of shyness and and kind of anxiety and and how do, how is this all going to work this year more than any other perhaps but yeah there was a real sense of we want to talk about films we're up for the film challenge that we're going to do and like they made sort of 10 11 films and we screened them all managed to sort of negotiate the online medium 
in order to get everybody watching the films. And yeah, it was great. Really loved it. So, you know, positive elements to to the start of term. But I have to say, you know, over the weekend, it's been pretty, pretty sort of sobering reading and thinking about what's going to be the next year, two years, five years with regards to um, auditorium viewing and and the film industry in terms of cinema as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. It's um it felt like the weekend where it was kind of the scale of 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 it was undeniable in in film terms. I mean, and it's weird because I think it's you know it's, it's easy to be like oh film, you know, is you know, we're only caring now that it's film, which I don't think is true, but it, when you when you spend your life immersed in something in the way we do for our for our jobs and for the the podcasts and things like that, you know, you have a certain affinity with with particular areas of culture, and I've been reading a lot about theatre and live music, and yeah. it's it's horrendous, you know. But but as as sort of was was in the um, the Sight and Sound editorial today, like cinemas were still open and were doing the best, and there was a, a, the potential for people who felt safe enough to go to to have a, a semblance of that experience, and the 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 shifts, particularly of kind of Black Widow. Um, and now the bond, bond yeah. and then the the um, the cine world closure means it really feels bleak, and it feels like hammer blow after hammer yeah. blow. Yeah, and did you see this morning Odeon as well? They're only going to be opening at the weekend. Oh, didn't see that. No. Yeah, that's literally in the last oh. half an hour. Um, so that's you know they're, they're not going to do any sort of midweek screenings at all. And yeah, and, and and to be honest, it's interesting how you know lots of blame flying around, or lots of sort of looking to place the reasonings behind this. And, you know, you, a lot of blame, obviously, sort of going to the government who, you know, it's, it seems to me, particularly the Tories, it's an anathema to them to support the creative industries. They'd rather talk about fishing all day long, which is half a, mil, half a billion industry. And I'm not saying it's not important, but it's dwarfed by the, by the creative industries. You know, even just video games is, you know, yeah. is so much bigger than, than that. But it, it, that fits into a particular discourse and... You know, it's an it's an ideological slash political political decision where the government focuses its help. It always it always will be. But you know, the studios themselves are they being as inherently conservative as they always are? You know, tentpole films are called that for a reason. And basing an industry on these you know huge extreme spectacles that cost an awful lot and and are ma- you know mass culture on the one hand, yeah, that's great. But if they if they don't, if they don't work, you've nothing to fall back on, and the the, the decision to sort of not support the fifty, sixty million dollar, you know, drama and and cede that that territory almost to television, I think has been really problematic. So I think what's happened with the pandemic, it, it has, it has really sort of clarified a lot and and accelerated a lot of unsustainable problems. I think that were there underlying cinema as an industry before yeah and i think it's very difficult as well to sort of blame audiences a because they're they have been conditioned over years and i you know i feel like i'm being condescending when i'm saying that but the idea of going to see a small normal film at the cinema is like well why would you do that the only reason you go to cinema is you want to see a big blockbuster action comic book movie that those two things go to together and because we we haven't really supported a, a real sort of national British cinema. And maybe we'll come back to sort of talking about that towards the end. 
it's not in the the interest of of right wing particularly governments. But I think you know left wing governments could be could be accused of this as well, or you know centre left governments that we've had in the recent past aren't interested in sort of arts as self reflexivity at all. You know Ken Loach is more or less a pariah, and most of the best talent has to go to America. So. There are huge structural problems that the the pandemic has just exposed, and it and it looks really exposed now. Yeah, and uh, what you're sort of saying there about the, the conditioning, the conditioning, I think is 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 also partly to do with the fact that there are still very few places to see those films. You know, in terms of urban centres with spaces that cater for the non-blockbusters. So when you're looking at the overall landscape of film distribution and exhibition in this country there's a few urban centers with great cinemas but when something like this happens a lot of the urban centers and a lot of the big the suburban centers they, they've only screened a certain type of, of, of cinema for a period of time and i think that does go back to things like you know the mishandling of the uk film council's digital rollout under new labor you know which was supposed to be a beacon of democratization for indie films but basically just meant that that the big studios and the big uh, exhibitors could have more copies of the same big film on more screens cheaper, mm. you know. So there is complicity. And I think that's what, what's interesting is you're sort of saying who, who's to blame. Well, we live in an age where we want a villain and this is a ca- classic capitalist yep. mess yep. in that there's so many interlinking issues and problems and people to blame, or not even people, but systems that... You can't say, well, it is the fault of the government for not supporting. Yes, in part, it would be great if they did. But also, how do we get in this position where the whole industry is so reliant on two films a year to to stay afloat? You know, that is, that's not great. But we know that's the case because we know that with those tent poles, the St. Maud's that's coming out this week, mm. um, the makeup, which was out recently, you know, there's, there's still a, a sliver of space given over to those things. And that's a real problem. Do I mourn the loss of Cineworld? No. You know, I think as a cinematic experience um, and as employers, you know, with picture houses, Mm -hmm. you know, routinely exploitative um, employers with a terrible cinema experience. What I mourn is that without them at the top doing their shoddy half-assed job, everyone suffers. And that's a that's that's no that's no position for an art form or even a kind of an industry um, like film to be in and that's the situation it finds itself in which is why it feels bleak i think because yeah, like yeah. every other area of culture we now realize actually the erosion of of a working system that benefited the culture and people and employed has just been neglected for so long to this position and now it's who knows what we're going to do to get out of it yeah um yeah i mean not not, not that again we want to sort of criticize that that idea of of that a movie could have saved summer, as it were. And, I mean, would you say that it was... I mean, not a mistake, because these people have to make decisions based on economics. I mean, as you were saying there, it it is the sort of commercial imperative that's driving everything and in ways that that make the the notion of an industry functioning in a a way that's sustainable almost impossible. But do you think it was inherently a, a mistake to move bond back or is that just a sort of symptom of okay we're making a decision tenet didn't do as well as people thought Mm. um we're gonna we're gonna just make sure that that we're gonna kind of get as much out of this situation or or you know what i mean cover our bets as as it were 
as much as we can by by thinking, yeah, well, hopefully the release cinemas will be in a much better position, which, you know, if you think about it and what we've just discussed there, there's no guarantee that there'll be as many cinemas to put Bond on in January, February, March. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? They want to make as much money as possible. That's the only goal they have. You know, I think Warner Brothers knew when they released Tenet that they were going to take a, a hit. Yeah. But the hope is that with enough people going plus a furlough scheme that's supported by the government plus you know hopefully a job support scheme you can tick it over you know you're you're supporting the you're supporting the culture and the art at a time when you're not going to make any money and the decision to withdraw so many films and that they haven't collaborated you know like and i think you know disney obviously doing their own thing netflix netflix are putting things in cinemas for the next few yeah. weeks like it's amazing like this is <laughs> it's crazy isn't it's it? crazy it's you know but there's been no discussions obviously amongst themselves about how yeah. they can how they can work together to to tide cinemas over so that yeah it's you know so that they can stay open so that when we return to a, a culture where we can watch it you know but the thing is they they, they don't they'll just see that bond could make a loss so it's yeah. like well we'll risk it but but like you say like if there's no audience and there's no cine worlds you know and there's no views in all these other places where are people going to see this stuff um you know because those smaller cinemas don't have the capacity other than to kick everything else out and i think cynically that's what they that's what they think is that when they release bond whatever the landscape is everybody will show it so mm-hmm. they'll they'll pressure places like home and and the the watershed to just show that and that'll push everything out and that's just how does that solve anything how does that make the future of film going and film culture remotely attractive and you just think well you know maybe it's time for a, a huge rethink if that's yeah, if that if that's the pressure that's going to come down the line yeah i think that's uh to be honest with you i don't see any other option i, I just do not know no. what the what the answer is at this point i mean you know and we, we could kind of we could go off on this on for a, for an awful lot longer and i think actually maybe the, there may be an episode in in, in the future where where we do sort of get more and more into the weeds about about this. But um, we haven't even spoken about what's on today's show, Neil. So this is an episode that you ostensibly uh, put together. So uh, tell us about it. So, yes, in wondrous, good, positive news, we have an episode on Nicholas Rogue's Walkabout. And earlier this, I think it was in the spring, it was actually towards the end of our, of our la- at the end of the last season, when we were kind of already in Indeed. preparing for for the sort of the finale of the season, we were offered the chance to to talk to Luke Rogue about this amazing uh, Blu-ray uh, reissue uh, that that's come out for I think I guess it's the fortieth fiftieth anniversary of the film, and um, yeah, and I asked if you know if we could chat to him, but uh, but maybe put it out in the new season because obviously we were, we were kind of up against it, and then they put the the release back to late August, so it's kind of it worked out quite well. But I talked to Luke in the summer, and it was just really wonderful to talk to him about about the film and his his memories and experience of it. But also, he's such a champion of his dad's work, and obviously, you know, Rogue is a is a filmmaker that we come back to a lot on this show. So that was that was really special. And then also we have Andrew Pierce, who listeners of the podcast will be familiar with from the hundredth episode. Uh, particularly and kind of mentioned quite a lot in in dispatches who is a film critic in australia 
and we talked to him about what walkabout means in a kind of national cinema context and that was a really really great chat which is also in this episode so yeah we uh, we kind of get into it with a film that only seems to grow in kind of power for me certainly um and yeah excited to to revisit that yeah i mean always interesting to discuss uh nick rhodes work again just sort of on in that question of of british cinema and how things get made and how they come to represent something after a period of time and sort of you know it's it's funny isn't it sort of now we're doing a lot of re-watching and seeing things in in new contexts and uh yeah really really enjoyed the two interviews that that you did uh luke rogue does sound like he's been uh phoned it in from the australian outback so uh really enjoyed that actually adds a sort of uh, a kind of texture to the uh to the episode i think so i hope the the, the listeners uh, appreciate that yeah there's a certain analog uh, distant quality to the phone line that we used <laughs> No, but all good. You can definitely you, you get the gist of what is 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 being said, and that's the uh, that that's definitely the main thing. And yeah, it was really nice to to rewatch the film. I think as well, like you're sort of saying there, at a time when doing a lot of re rewatching, but where there's a kind of there's a different emphasis on rewatching and rethinking cinema. You know, particularly yeah. around things like Black Lives Matter. Um, you know, and what we talked yeah. about in the last episode, sort of decolonization of 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 culture in the university space, but also in a wider public sphere. So seeing a film which, by all accounts, should provoke a lot of outrage <laughs> and controversy for, for its subject matter and, and, and its depiction that, that kind of evades that, I think is is really interesting to, to get into. Yeah, we'll talk a, a little bit more about that, at, you know, in, in between and at the end, because I think, mm. uh, yeah, it's you, you ask both Luke uh, and Andrew about that that question. So I definitely want to, to comment on. So should we get straight into it? Yeah. So first up is my conversation with star of Walkabout and film producer extraordinaire Luke Rogue. There is a place where time stands still, where nature is harsh and demanding, where only the quick and the strong and the deadly can survive. This place is no place for civilized man. In this place, man is just another of God's creatures. Oh, 
aborigine and the girl. 30,000 years apart, together. Walkabout. Just about the most different film you'll ever see. Good stuff. Thanks so much for talking to me today. Not at all. Um, I yeah, I rewatched the film this week. Um, wonderful as ever, um, and the the release seems amazing. What a lovely package! I've been going through some of the um, features as well, which has been really interesting. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. <laughs> it's really wonderful. I think. Um, yeah. In your uh, in your interview, you say that you you kind of you know you never considered yourself a child actor. Um, uh, obviously, this was a very kind of specific uh, role and project. But I wonder what you think, looking back on your performance, you know, as as a as a performance, what do you make of it when you when you have to kind of watch it to do commentaries and things like that. my performance from a kind of professional point of view because all I'm seeing are memories and then those memories are being kind of processed in a way uh, so I, I don't really I, I couldn't say I judge my performance professionally but I do but I but I can say that um, I, 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 I love the film I mean and that has nothing to do with my performance, but it has to do with the sort of the quality of Nick's work and and what he was the film that he made and was able to to, to create for us. Yeah, it's what's interesting. I think. Well, one of the many things that's interesting is it's a film that has evaded criticism. Um, you know, I think that they, because I think that there's a lot of often films get criticised when they're portraits of indigenous people and indigenous life made by people who are non-indigenous but walkabout has has kind of you know rightly evaded that um for the most part and i wondered why you think it's a film that that kind of stands outside because on the surface it is you know a white filmmaker going in to make a film that's very culturally specific yes and it was done at a time when there wasn't really any appreciation for the indigenous people in Australia. It was still very much um, not not part of, not being, you know, there are still struggles and, and, and battles to, to this day, but, but then back in the 1960s, it was, the world was a very different place, obviously. And I think that that's, what, you know, one of the real assets and beauties of the film is, in David's performance and how you and and how you appreciate him and his relationship with the natural world and with us and and I think that yeah that's at the heart it's almost at the heart of the film isn't it it's yeah. the fact that these three three young people don't see colour they don't see culture they don't see religion they just see each other yeah. and they you know 
know, they learn to, you know, ultimately love each other and fall in love with each other and appreciate and save each other. So, you know, it's a very, it's a beautiful film about the human condition, honestly. I mean, and it, it's not through any shared language. It, they find their own language, don't they? And, that, yeah. and I think that, I think there's a huge honesty and, and respect for the indigenous culture in the film. I, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's an interesting question, and I think that it would stand the test today in today's world. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, rewatching it, 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 it definitely does. Just as much as it did then. Yeah, it, rewatching it, it definitely does. And one of the things that's interesting is that. Um, one of the criticisms about those kinds of films is often that you know there's such a kind of an awakening from uh, the lead characters, but but the girl character doesn't really appreciate what's going on, or you know, until it's almost kind of too late, you know, look, looking back on what it was, which is really interesting um, way of of telling that story. Yes, and also it's it's the beat that is so moving, isn't it? Yeah, it's when. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one uh, of the, the thi- by John Barry's Yes, I think the, the 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 music in the film, that kind of mix of the the lush John Barry and the Stockhausen, is such a yeah. brilliant combination in terms of always keeping yeah. you moving between different um, different kind of emotional spaces. It's really really beautifully done. I have to say, and um, Nick had such an appreciation for music and you were so, you know, we worked with some great composers, Stanley Myers. But honestly, I, I would honestly say that the music, the, the, the relationship between the music and Walked Up in the film is almost perfect for me. I mean, in terms of mixed work as well, it's, it's such an important creative element to the film and it's in such harmony with all of the cinematography of the natural world and the environment. Um, yeah. Yeah, I agree. That was just a small, that was a small moment of appreciation. No, it's lovely. Yeah, it's lovely because, like you say, it's kind of it's not just with the cinematography, but with the editing and and the idea of time yeah. and 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 what time we're in when, um, and it, it feels so instinctive and natural. I mean, that's one of the great things about his filmmaking, anyway, was is how how natural everything feels um, and kind of in, instinctive, um, and it's certainly certainly on display there one of the things that's been talked about is you know the, the the fortuitous age of everyone at the moment that the film is made um which feels like one of those really kind of you know uh alchemical kind of film uh things which just sort of happen um i wonder i wonder kind of what are the lessons that you take from walkabout and then from watching your dad work that that you've kind of relied on or really thought about in your own producing work? Mm, that's interesting. I mean, that you're never really in control. <laughs> you know, I think you have to, you have, and, and all you want to do is be in control. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's a strange dilemma that you find yourself in. And I think that 
being instinctive and allowing things and moments to happen was a big part of how Mick worked. Um, he, you know, not to say that he wasn't a rigorous and, and, and um, prepared filmmaker in the sense that you know, his work was scripted and but he was also incredibly instinctive and reactionary and, and that came from having just such a massively experienced technical ability yeah. from his work in the cutting room as well as his work with the camera. And I think that that gave him this, this very kind of instinctive way of, of working. Um, and I think that that's something to strive for. I think it's, it's what brings out some of the magic in his films. Um, and it's what I think it also kind of has, it feeds into the cast, it feeds into everything, every element of it. You know, it's certainly the actors pick up on that and, and interpret that as well. Not, not that they would ever be ad-libbing, but just it would be that sense of the film being alive while yeah. he was making it. Yeah, you really get the sense that they're responding to the environment in a very kind of yeah. realistic way, um, which doesn't feel forced uh, at all. Um, and a lot of the interviews that you've given and that the other cast have given is about that, the kind of the journey of making yeah. the film, you know, and kind of not making yeah. it up as you go along, but like you say, responding to environment and, and thinking about what the environment's giving you as you make the film. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I met... I met... Uh, it's not an easy not an easy thing to do because all of your instincts are there about control and when things don't go the way that you imagine them to you start to panic and, and you don't you can't and then you lose control so it's a very difficult balance to get and I was you know coming back to that point I think Nick had it because of his sheer technical ability yeah. and, the, and how confident he was in that yeah absolutely um, I met I met Nick uh, when Poffball was released. He came to uh, my film festival in Luton, um, and at the, yeah, and it was amazing. And uh, at the time, he wasn't really talking about his old work. You know, I mean, obviously, he wasn't really one. For, it didn't seem like um, to be one for looking back. You know, always looking for for the next thing. But over the last sort of decade of his life, that there was a real resurgence of. Um, particularly this period, Walkabout, Don't Look Now, Man Who Fell to Earth, in terms of, you know, reissues and restorations and things like that. And I wondered, like, did his, how did his opinion change about the film and talking about it um, in that period? You know, when, you know, because obviously he gave much, many more interviews about it, but but how, how did he kind of take that, that kind of looking back uh, part of the, uh, the kind of the inevitable kind of career of a filmmaker like Nick? Yeah. He didn't take it like that. I think because, um, you know, his work was, was, you don't say underappreciated, because that's, an, in some circumstances, that's an understatement. Mm. I mean, when you look back at films like Walkabout and how that was, uh, sorry, not Walkabout, performance, and how that was received when he made the film, and bad timing, and, you know, these films had, and, and Eureka, these films had very, very difficult birthing processes. So, uh, you know, he, he didn't hold any resentment towards that, but he would, that made him understand that things are fluid, you know, that the, the, the reactions are fluid, and not to take them 
too literally. Mm. And of course, he liked, like anybody, he liked to be appreciated and, and respected, but but he really, you know, he always wanted to be in the present. Yeah. He didn't just want to be a, a piece of the past. Having said that, he would always talk affectionately and fondly of walkabout. Yeah. It was never one that he really avoided. And he would avoid talking about performance or he might avoid talking about certain aspects of that timing things, you know, just because he just wanted to keep the momentum, but he would always be very open and generous. Yeah. Do you think yeah. about Do you think that has a lot to do with obviously the fact that it was his first kind of sole directing credit? Um and also that you know that it felt like such a a kind of family experience with having you on on in the film, but also yeah. you know this kind of traveling traveling family. It feels like a very intimate experience. Well, it was the lack there. I think more than the formula was more to do with it being that that experience for yeah. us as a family, and you know it wasn't just me being out there. It was my mother and my brothers, and it, you know we were there for a long time living in living in the outback, mm. um, and the, you, you know, the crew was very small, Peter Hannan, Tanya Chimila, these people were very, became very close yeah. to us as a family and to Nick through his career, um, and, you know, friends and, and both friends and professionally. So, yeah, I, I think it was more the, the sort of personal intimacy of the experience that sort of kept it close to his heart. Great. Um, yeah, but, uh, you know, I'm so pleased that you know in his lifetime he came to be appreciated for the filmmaker that he that he was because yeah. he, you know he gave the world of cinema so much. Absolutely, yeah. In the uh, in in the uh, new, sorry, yeah, go on. No, I was just going to say, you know, then you know those things when they happen posthumously, they always leave a sort of a, a, a hollow feeling. Yeah. Whereas I think he was at least able to, even though he, he wanted to live in the present, at least he was able to see that how much he was appreciated and untimely. Yeah, um, one of the one of the um, on the new on the new uh, uh, release of Walkabout, there's a wonderful Danny Boyle interview. Um, where he, you know, talks so, you know, so much about the influence of Nick, um, and he uses the, the, you know, a phrase that was often attributed to Nick about wanting to tap into cinema's unused potential, um, and then, and I wondered, like, looking at your filmography as a producer, in recent years you've worked with Lynn Ramsey and Carol Morley, arguably filmmakers also tapping into that unused potential and kind of ex- exploring what the form of cinema can be. I wonder if you're if you're drawn to those filmmakers because they maybe have some of that spirit about them? Oh, definitely. Um, you know, I'm done really. It was, a, it was thrilling working with Liam and Carol. Um, I made two films with Carol with The Falling and Out of Blue and, you know, both those experiences were really, from a professional point of view, very fulfilling. Um they're just, you know, these are films that are very difficult to get made and not getting any easier. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you, you, they, they, they tend to be few and far between now, but um, you know, you've always, you always... They, they feed your career, they keep you going um, yeah. and keep you, you know, 
keep me looking for that next experience and that next filmmaker, definitely. In addition to being around film, obviously, so so much, um, what who were who were the kind of the influences in terms of the the filmmakers that that kind of made you kind of want to make that step into the family business, as it were? Um, yeah, I, the filmmaker who uh, I just kind of been a mental figure in terms of my own personal career has been Jeremy Thomas. Um, just he opened my eyes to what it was really meant to be a creative producer. Um, and I, you know, he helped me get started in my career, Jeremy, and you know, he's now a very close and dear personal friend. But I, you know, I, I think I was watching him work and the way he worked and the relationship he had with filmmakers and with cast and with, and the, you know, how intimately involved he was with the film and, and, and making the film happen, all of those, all of that learning curve, I'd say that's what set me on my career path, definitely. Great. You used the phrase there, creative producer. Um, I think in the world, in the world that, you know, we, we're in right now, um, there's never been a, a greater need for kind of creative producers. Um, and it was interesting thinking about Walkabout in the kind of the climate that we're in. You know, it's a film that's mostly shot outdoors and like historically kind of very small unit, uh, very few cast. Um, it feels almost like the kind of film that would actually stand a good chance of... Uh, of kind of being realised in, uh, in 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 whatever filmmaking is going to be. I wondered what your thoughts about the next the next stage of kind of film production is at, at this stage um, in terms of looking forward on the types of films that might that might have to be made. Um, you know, kind of logistically. Oh goodness! I mean, I did some of the shiver that Sorry, <laughs> sorry. Uh, I I think really just on basis in a very short term they're either going to be sort of very low budget um, and very uh, sort of containable productions or they're going to be productions that are backed by studios or streaming platforms who aren't relying on production insurance to underwrite any form of their finance plan um you know, the, that, that's it in a very simple form. So, uh, you know, I think that we're going to see a sort of an effort by the streaming platforms in terms of the continuation and getting film, getting shows back into production that are feeding their pipeline, uh, you know, whether or not they're commissioning a lot of new work this side of, you know, next few months, we'll wait and see. But I think that they're going to really try and get their, their few of their key shows back on the road. Um and yeah, little, little, little local production, I think, has a standard chance. But the idea of running a set and maintaining, you know, the right level of COVID protection and seeing all of that interfere with the creative process, ultimately, because, you know, it's going to affect actors, it affects filmmakers. Sure, I, I, I'm honestly an optimist and think that creativity can come from that, but it's not a particularly creative place to start, is it? No, hopefully, uh, yeah. The, the hope is that, yeah, that kind of the, the, the restrictions and the limitations will 
will bear fruit creatively um, in ways that we can't really see right now. hard yeah is that is that that was going to be my next question really is like what why why do his films kind of maintain is it because they feel so almost alien you know in terms of british cinema in the 1970s and and kind of any cinema at any time really they they, there's such a there's such a rewarding experience kind of revisiting and seeing just how, how 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 they even work you know in terms of their component parts. There's obviously something always bigger. Um, what is it about his work do you think that keeps bringing people back to it? Well, I think, you know, that you've answered the question. I, th- I think that it's the appreciation of the, uh, the, the, the sort of artistic integrity of the, of the work. And it was, a, you know, it was, it was a rich time in cinema in the 70s, wasn't it? It was, it was a creatively rich time. Yeah. Um, both here and in America, etc. I I think that yes, I think that's an I I think there's an appreciation that it would be very hard to experience that again in that form, in that sort of pure art form where you're not making a film for a market. Where, you know, we're a filmmaker on top of their craft and ability with an you know a boundless imagination. An understanding of the human condition that can put all of those elements together and bring something together that's a difficult thing to achieve now and so i think we look at that and can appreciate it even more for what it is great well that's a nice uh, that's a nice place to end but i do have one small question um which is completely unrelated um but from a kind of sure. personal point of view um, as a as a as a Tom Waits fan and as someone who's about hopefully about to write a book on music documentaries, I wondered if Big Time will ever see a proper release, which was your first kind of uh, full feature producing credit. Well, thank you for missing. I, you know, I, I, I was thinking about Big Time. I would really love to see it. Um, I think it's you know it's a great artist. Yeah. Um, you know, these, again, these films are very difficult to make now. Um, and he's a, you know, he's a great performing artist as well as a great musician. And I, I, I'd love to see it get re-released. Um, I actually just Googled and found a nice big-time poster to remind myself of the film. Wow. Was um, that a great experience? As that was your... Hold of. Was that, a, was that um, a positive experience in terms of your first kind of producing role on a feature? I had this music video company, which I started with Chris Blackwell, 
and Jeremy Thomas. Yeah. And, you know, even though they had vastly more experience and life experience than I did. Um, and Tom Waits was obviously one of Island Records' artists. And so there was a sort of synergy for bringing me into it and, and getting the film made. And I'd made a lot of videos and a lot of concert films because it was a sort of boom time of MTV. So it wasn't anything that felt particularly intimidating um, until I came to sort of make the film. And I don't think I was probably in... You know, I think I could have appreciated more if I'd have had a little bit more life under my belt. Just, you know, yes, I could have appreciated Tom and be, having the privilege of working and making the film for Tom um, a little bit more. But, you know, still with hindsight... It's a lovely thing to have done. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for humouring me there um, with with that little yeah, bit. Of note. Um, we'll, we'll start a campaign. Bring big time back. I yeah. Consider me signed up definitely. Um, okay. Well, thank you so much for for talking to me today. And yeah, um, just what a pleasure it was to to revisit Walkabout and get to talk to you about it. Great. Well, thanks for the time. Take care. Look forward to it. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much to Luke for his time and uh, I will be nagging you once a week, Luke, uh, to get the Tom Waits film released. Uh, uh, it's uh, it's made it a mission. Um, but yeah, no, really, really love talking to him and uh, yeah, really interesting kind of thoughts and insights there. So Dario, what, what sort of resonated from that conversation with you? Yeah, there was a, a lot in there. I think it was interesting sort of talking about Luke talking about his father, you know, looking back and the, the the sort of period of time where when when someone starts to look back, they realize that they're not in the present anymore or, you know what I mean? They're not the sort of top dog yeah. or they're not the person that, that producers will go to immediately and sort of saying he yeah. didn't take that easily. And, and some of the films were reminders of the difficulties and, and the sort of contingencies of success and failure and, and you can't legislate for that that was really sort of interesting to to listen to and it tied in I think to Luke's own work clearly as a producer and working as you sort of pointed out with uh, Carol Morley and Lynn Ramsey and we've spoken enough about those two directors and how their work is I don't know if, if mishandled is the right word but it you know it just seems to be a battle to get those filmmakers works i mean made to start with but then positioned with audiences and you know god knows we're we're sort of talking about how to get films seen as much as as much as anything right now but i mean again sort of luke did kind of comment on the the way that the film is when you asked him about why it it may have evaded criticism when if you just look on the surface especially from 2020 there is a there, there would be a lot to critique, and this is not a film that you would sort of just dump in front of a mainstream audience and say, "What do you make of that?" You know, um, and that idea of it being non-judgmental of its its treatment of indigenous people is an interesting is an interesting thing, I think. And I'm not sure how I how I think about that, or whether I sort of think that that's the case, or that ties particularly. To the reason why it hasn't been criticised. I mean, it's interesting. There's the the book by um, Lewis Naura, who wrote a book on on Rogue, and the sort of chapter on, on Walkabout talks about how it's more about it's more about Rogue himself, sort of 
reflecting on on in English society and the sort of colonial legacy. And obviously that's really, really key. Um, and, you know, the discussions of, of its of its depictions, I think it's 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 a really tricky one because you know now looking back from from 2020 the context is so different and you can read the film just watching it again as i did the other night you can read the film as really quite on the nose at certain points but then i think you know when you factor in that it is rogue and there there is clearly a lot going on in terms of how the filmmaker is trying to layer the the, the meanings and and you know he's got a lot of kind of symbolism going on that that i think it can be just sort of taken at face value but i think has to be sort of thought about in 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 more com complex ways than maybe you would if you were just sort of coming at this cold without without really knowing without really knowing the context i mean i don't know how have you been thinking about this idea of of the representations because there's there's the racial element but also i think that there, there is the the clear sort of um, gaze element when it comes to Jenny Agatha's uh, character. Yes. Um, no, I have. I think what you're saying there is it's kind of made me sort of helped me articulate it probably in a, in a better way, which is it's. I don't think that the film is not problematic or complicated in terms of its depictions and its representations. I think two things that, that you know sort of, sort of come to mind. One is that it does still surprise me that when we're cancelling things left, right and centre for, you know, for very knee-jerk reactions, that it's a, it's a film that hasn't gone through the ringer and been, you know, hauled over the coals for that. Um, because, like you say, on the surface, there's there's clearly things that that it should be um, or could be sort of, you know, pulled up for. But what I think really unsettles the film and makes it hard to, to stand by saying you know it's doing this or it's doing that is the rogueness of it you know like that it, it feels at points that it's doing that but then in the next moment the shift through the edit or through what he's shooting and how he's shooting it is makes you feel well maybe it's it's not that you know that it, it is something else and the positioning of jenny agatha's symbol as both the object of um the um the aborigine characters awakening um is kind of is is always bound up with her own real refusal to to even care or understand that she's being looked at a lot of the time you know in that way or or that she would be or that she is part of a problematic thing or that she's she doesn't ever kind of give herself over to the experience of being in the outback and being on a walk you know like she's very pragmatic i want to get back to my i want to get back to my western life i want to get back to what was planned for me you know and there's such a fluidity between the perspective shifts throughout that it's it, it never settles into one but by the end you're like wow there's lots of instances of of lots of different problems in terms of those issues that that feel kind of woven in throughout you know and that that's really something that rogue does throughout his kind of most kind of famous work is is really make it hard to say this is what it's about mm. <laughs> you know which i think is makes him fascinating um and also means that even in 2020 that what's jarring about it is simultaneously yes there's a real kind of lasciviousness to some of the photography on Jenny Agata but there's also a really dark critique of yeah kind of colonial forces in uh, in different countries which is yeah they just sit side by side mm. in a really 
unsettling way um, in a way that you just don't really you don't really have those kind of positions jostling uh, as much anymore I don't think yeah I mean that maybe that's the reason why it's, it has escaped if you know if it has because I mean I don't know the sort of critical literature or literature or the academic literature that much I think there has been criticism more on the academic side i, I think say. there's critique yeah. you know yeah. and i think that's the thing i think there is it is a film which is open to critique and there's there's kind of there's a variety of voices pro and cons but it's not mm. it's not that no one should watch walkabout again yeah but <laughs> because yeah, it's no, that, you know that, yeah. that's for sure and also i think that it's it, it, as you you were sort of alluding to there it's difficult to say with this film oh that, that's what it means that's what it's saying mm. and especially that even there because i slightly sort of disagree in terms of she always wants to get back to her normal life she does through the film but then at the end, with the flashback of this exactly. sort of imagination yeah. of what what a life could have been if she'd stayed in the outback, um, is is kind of interesting. And I think that you know, again, you can sort of read the the, the, the sort of lingering camera gaze on the one hand as you know a re- really quite problematic, you know, for the length of time that 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 happens. But then, is it trying to? Is that just the reading of? an audience member you know probably you know probably a, ma- a, a, a straight male white straight male audience member who is reading that onto something which actually is trying to sort of put the innocence back into the connection with a human being and the and nature now maybe yeah. that's a really naive way of looking at it because you know it's a movie so therefore it's it's based on spectacle and the pleasure of looking so what what's the have we is the most pleasure being gained through that innocent sort of way of looking or is it much more of the libidinous way of looking you know and i think most people would say actually you know it's the it's the latter rather than the former um yeah yeah and the fact i mean it's interesting in the fact that they never you, you know the sort of key element or one of the key elements of the movies is the fact that she isn't aware or she's kind of half aware that when he's doing his sort of mating ritual dance that that means something and she's not yeah. quite sure what it is and she's scared and then you know she finds him hung up you know which is pretty which is pretty kind of brutal but then just kind of goes off on her day as it were right yeah, okay yeah. Well, we're, we're off to the to try and find our way back and stuff so it's yeah and as you say it's a, it's it is a she is a problematic character in that way and sort of sort of talk about the coding of and the way that the the father kind of kills himself at the beginning and, and tries to sort of shoot them at shoot them himself you know is a real critique of the the man in, in modern world sort of going mad because of his surroundings and then they they just sort of both the kids just kind of matter-of-factly so okay well we're on our way now and keep their school uniforms on it's really sort of yeah really strange but in a in a in a way that is just so intriguing and you're like yeah i'm not really sure what i'm supposed to think here yeah yeah, there's a real kind of British stiff upper lip, we will prevail attitude to those kids. Yeah. Um, you know. I think, yeah, what 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 strikes me about the, the sort of the, the end of the film is 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 how is how the, the tragedy is writ large on both the young characters. Um the 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 suicide is, you know, can be read as a, a kind of tragic example of yeah, when a native culture meets the colonizing culture and there's no there's no engagement or empathy from that you know it can only end in in kind of tragedy and despair and then of course the, mm. the tragedy is expounded by the fact that when the 
the colonizing force actually thinks even remotely about what that culture might bring to their life and to their existence it's too late the damage is done you know um she can't go back yeah. um she can't go back to the place and be the same and you know the the, the opportunity for a shared empathy and a growing and a you know regardless of the fact that the colonizing force shouldn't necessarily be in the first is it's just lost you know and that just deeply deeply sad and like you say yeah mm. she's she's not open to what that is she's scared by it because she doesn't understand it or she thinks she understands it and then it's like oh my gosh and then just kind of moves on and it's really it's really yeah it's one of many strangenesses that can't really be explained as a logical plot thing <laughs> but are, are felt in the fabric of the film in terms of yeah what what the filmmaker is hoping we we kind of draw from it yeah, I mean, and to me, the weirdest element was that scene with the weather scientists. Oh, man. I mean, yeah. what the hell was going on there? I mean, that was straight out of Benny Hill. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, sorry, but I mean, it's kind of, if, if it had sort of retained, remained in the, in with the tone of the app, that's the only sort of note where I was just like, oh my God, this is like nails down a blackboard in the middle of this film. I think what's interesting though, that, and also maybe some of the way, some of the on the nose stuff is, I think it's, it's, it's important to remember that this is his first film as a director on his own. Right. You know, like he's, he's, he's co-directed performance, you know, and obviously largely, largely kind of did the work on that as, 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 as off told, but, but certainly working in collaboration before that, he's a cinematographer, but, and then if you look at things that don't look now and then man who fell to earth, they're much less on the nose, you know, his, sure. the way he's kind of using symbolism and imagery and kind of performance style to to get at stuff becomes much much more ingrained with the, with the film i think it's it's quite jarring in, in walkabout in certain places but i i think it's it's important to remember that as as great a film as it is and as interesting a film as it is it's still it's still an early work you know and i think that because he's such a dynamic filmmaker some of some of his stylistic choices like the the way that thread of the weather balloon thing you know it, it's not as it's not as naturally um ensconced in the film as 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 some of the those kind of motifs and themes would be in later work particularly sort of man who fell to earth time i think yeah yeah sure i mean i think obviously one of the key questions is is the australianness of of mm. the film as a whole so maybe we should uh, uh we should go to andrew for that for that because i think he he sets up that context really well yeah uh thank you andrew for being the the voice of Australia um, on this matter. Um, You've always got to be the voice of something in this. Day. Exactly. Um, and we appreciate him stepping into that void for us. So this is my conversation with Andrew Pierce from The Curb in Melbourne.
yeah, one of the things that I find interesting about it is it's a film that hasn't hasn't succumbed to the fate that a lot of films made by quote unquote outsiders. Mm. You know, there's you know, it's normally very controversial for a you know white filmmaker to take on the story of a native uh, character or representation of a native character and kind of and not be really really kind of dragged over the coals for a bad representation and that's something that we'll walk about's never really um had that you know in any mm. kind of real sense and i'm interested in why really because on the surface it, you would think that it, it might have done um and that then made me think well how is it viewed as as, an, as a piece of australian cinema you know um yeah yeah well i think that's the interesting thing is that you know certainly in that era which is considered the australian new wave era in a lot of ways um there was obviously this great influx of films i'm not sure if, how familiar you are with that particular era where uh, basically for two decades australia didn't have any films made at all and so there was an injection of money from two subsequent prime ministers to say we need a film industry and we need to get that going and so that started in like the late uh, 60s early 70s with films like um, wake and fright with films like walkabout um, and interestingly enough as well they're a weird mob as well so you know talking about outsiders obviously we didn't have a, an array of um, directors who were kind of working in australia there was no um, pool of people so it's expected that we had to import foreigners to come and tell our stories um, yeah. as for walkabout like I think it's, it depends on who you talk to. I don't see it as an Australian film, <laughs> even though it tells an Australian story. It's um, it, it, it is done. So from a foreign perspective with foreign money and things like that, um, with that said, Wake and Fright is also, uh, you know, funded from international money as well. Um, which is a whole nother complex com conversation as well about uh, does the funding matter or is it the place of where the story is told that makes it, that particular country's film. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there was that influx of, of international directors coming in and telling these kinds of stories. And uh, especially for Walkabout, which really set the tone as to what Australian films would look like. Uh, and not only that, but it, it launched the career of arguably our finest actor, David Gulpilil, who has had an extensively brilliant career as an actor. And Walkabout was what started him off. And he is a really um, a steadfast person who pushes for Indigenous content in Australian films and TV. Uh, and he would have, at the time, certainly uh, maybe not as much, had, had as much sway as he does uh, nowadays or in subsequent years, but he would have really pushed to make sure that that was authentic and, and clear mm. uh, and, and genuine you know, and not yeah. offensive or anything like that, even though I do appreciate that there are some people who uh, criticise the film for its purely white perspective of uh, both Australia and Indigenous culture, putting Australia, uh, white Australians uh, up as the kind of uh, the dominant people, I guess, is the way of putting it. Yeah. But yeah I, did, I, did, uh, I did want to come back yeah. to that. So I think that's an interesting yeah. theme and, and goal for Lil as well. But I just wanted to sort of go back to something you said there about not seeing it as a, as an Australian film. And I wondered how, how rogue as a filmmaker kind of figures into that because, you know, there's a difference between filmmakers coming in and telling stories. And then there's, a, and then there's someone like rogue who's obviously 
got a very very signature way of storytelling and mm. kind of seeing stuff and you know do you think that's kind of uh kind of you know part of why it's kind of maybe sits out a little bit outside australian cinema and then you sort of said that kind of sets the tone for how they look and you know again i guess rogue being a cinematographer kind of is is is, is so it's such a powerfully visual film you know mm. is, it, is it is it is it the case that then kind of people are following rogue in terms of like how to actually photograph australia do you think well, I think so, for sure. Um, I, I think looking at Australian films during that era, uh, because we just didn't know how to show ourselves on screen as much as we should have done. Um, we were still learning the language of Australian cinema, learning uh, the, the vibe and the mood of what was going to go on with Australian cinema. What kind of stories do we want to tell? And so having a template that was kind of like really explored the outback as a whole mm. and beautifully so as you're saying rogue is a cinematographer and that really helps amplify how beautiful australia is in in a lot of different ways and he he litters the film with these stark you know devastating imagery of like burning cars and and people dying and things like that reverse suicides and stuff like that which is it's unsettling yeah and uh, it, it makes the familiar feel new for us, at least as a whole. And certainly, um, while I'm not as well versed on Rogue's uh, filmography as, as uh, I probably should be, I have seen his major hitters and stuff like that. Uh, one of the things which I really find fascinating about him as a filmmaker is that he often does this kind of uh, outsider looking in perspective. And there is very much a... Um, you know, people visiting other countries and something terrible happening. Don't look now. Or yeah. even the man who fell to earth. It's like, what happens when you put, you know, for, for a bit, want of a better term, a fish out of water story. What yeah. happens when you put this strange person into an unfamiliar land? And that's kind of the narrative uh, thread that I've seen throughout some of his films. And it just, I think it brings a, a unique perspective that we so rarely get to see. And um, again, coming back to the fact that we hadn't had a cinematic language for Australia as a whole, by defining that and getting us to look at ourselves uh, more reflectively and starting conversations about the role of white Australia, starting conversations about the role of Indigenous Australia. I mean, uh, you know, you have to go back to uh, Jeddah in uh, 1955, which was the first film that had Indigenous actors in it. And that's pretty like we obviously made a bunch of films in the, the 1920s and 30s uh, unfortunately a lot of them have, have disappeared and while fortunately enough we didn't uh, employ uh, blackface as much as uh, american places um there still wasn't that many indigenous actors around there, there just there just wasn't they weren't considered um people as such Apologies for my dog coughing in the background there. Um, no, never apologise for a dog in the background. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, that, that in itself is a really monumental thing. And I think they're the, the aspects of Walkabout that have forced it to endure as a classic, as a masterpiece. Mm. Uh, and, and rightly so, um, because it does set those particular boundaries and the levels of, of what was to come. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. And I think that one of, one of the interesting aspects of the, the, 
the kind of the, the culture clash that sort of sits at the heart of the the film and why i think it, it there is a there is a you know there is a case to be made for it being about yeah kind of white dominance and white privilege but one of the things that i find really unsettling and you know kind of interesting about it is how the particularly jenny agatha's character the girl you know is is completely kind of untouched by the experience at the time and mm. and looks back on it with a fondness once she's kind of back in which there's this you know this kind of classic rogian kind of sort of uh what's the word i'm looking for um uh kind of yeah there's this classic rogian tension that's kind of at the heart of it like she is you know a kind of uh sort of young woman on the verge of you know young girl on the verge of womanhood in the outback um with you know uh with this kind of you know native um uh sort of guide but she never comes out of I want to get home. I want to get back to the thing. So it always feels to me like a comment on the whiteness as mm. opposed to something that is kind of purely exoticizing the other and sort of suggesting how kind of transformative an experience it can be to be with, you know, the indigenous peoples in their own uh, kind of environment. Um, and I wondered, you know, how do you read the film, you know, as, 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 a, as a kind of Australian, as a white Australian as well, you know, like, mm. do you see that tension or, you know, where do you kind of come down on those kind of criticisms? Um, I think one of the more interesting parts is that, you know, she comments in the film that she'd never seen an Aboriginal person before. <laughs> yeah. And which is, which is uh, from my perspective, at least a little bit bizarre, but I, I wasn't around the 1970s. So um, I didn't get to see that, but it, it, it it creates this kind of novelty aspect about Indigenous Australia, and it creates this this uh, viewpoint that there are these people, these these uh, in quotes, uh, I guess, savages who live out on the land and who knows what they do and all this kind of stuff. And yeah. and the film doesn't shy away from that kind of horrific brutality. And certainly having David Gulpilu, um kill kangaroos and and you know native wildlife and things like that, and you see it happen. And that in itself is, um, we'd never seen that before, you know, and there, which amplifies that kind of, that other, that uh, they're not, they're not city folk. They're not us. They're not white people. And it, it, it just kind of distinguishes the difference between the two. It, is, it makes it even clearer that, uh, you know, Indigenous Australians live a completely different life. Mm. And I think that, I think that maybe one of the big troubles about, uh, walkabout and certainly other Australian films from the era. Uh, the, the subsequent film that David Gopalo did was Storm Boy, um, which is a beautiful, magnificent film. Uh, if you have kids, you should watch it, but it is very devastating to watch. I think the, the main difficulty is that it wasn't for decades that Australian films were getting told from an Indigenous perspective. So they didn't have control um, of what was going on in society as a whole which yeah. made it, uh, you know, even today, they're still fighting for uh, equality and, um, and things like that. And that's amplified by how their stories are told on screen. Uh, it's always from a white perspective. It's always from uh, the other. They are always othered. And uh, it took until, you know, the 2000s for directors like Ivan Sen and Rachel Perkins to be able to start telling their stories from their perspective. And in a positive light, it was always 
in a negative way. There was always something negative. It's always a drama or a tragedy with Indigenous stories. And, you know, in the 2000s, we had a comedy musical called Brand New Day, which is a beautiful Indigenous comedy musical. And it helps highlight the difference, you know, and how long it took for that kind of positive story to get told on screen. Um, so I think that kind of impact of a film like Walkabout is, um, it's both sad, uh, but it's also fascinating from a cultural aspect to look back and see the whiteness of it all. Yeah. And, and I think that the benefit of having a discussion like this is we can, we can critically analyze and assess a film like Walkabout and go, all right, these are what it does right. And this is what it does wrong. Mm -hmm. And we can assess and see that it's not trying to uh, portray a truth or anything like that, but it's just trying to reflect society and the time at the, uh, in film. Yeah. Um, which I think is really important to, to keep in mind when watching a film like this, because yeah, uh, certainly in the seventies, while there are a lot of indigenous people who do still live on the land, uh, there's still a lot of indigenous people who are part of society as a whole. Um, yeah. I yeah. don't know if that really yeah. kind of addresses what you were trying to say. But yeah, that's... no, it's, not, it's that perspective and that, you know, and kind of it brings out a line like she says about, you know, you know, not seeing an Aboriginal uh, person. And then, you know, I don't, I don't pick up on that line, you know, as an mm -hmm. English person, but the significance of that, I think, you know, because that, again, it kind of, it further paints her in a very, very particular light. I don't think she's a very sympathetic character in the film. Um, you know, I don't find her sympathetic. Um, I find her interesting, and I find that relationship really interesting. But, but so that so that so that that kind of perspective, I think, is really fascinating. And yeah, you well, know, I think it, the key thing as well is that uh, for for people who are watching it in now nowadays, they might forget that the stolen generation was occurring in that period of time. Yeah, uh, it's a major um, light on Australian history uh, where. Indigenous children were stolen and taken away from their families and uh, raised to be white, essentially. And so Gulpalil's character might have been affected by that, but there's no conscious assessment or critical assessment of that particular uh, cultural event that, that was going on at the time. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't a major thing that was in um, you know, the, the public consciousness. Uh, it took years for that to really uh, be assessed and... and, and um, dealt with in a, in a proper um, good way, I guess. Uh, it took them decades to, uh, for the government to apologise to Indigenous people uh, for what occurred during the Solon generation. Um, but I think that's, a, that's another aspect of how white it is. There, there, it's easy to tell these kinds of stories from a perspective that doesn't embrace the genuine history that was going on yeah um, I, I mean i guess that i guess as well you know one of the one, almost one of the things that sort of creates a bubble around walkabout is a sense that rogue is just is not is not aware of that or interested mm, in that it doesn't really yeah. touch on that stuff at all like it kind of you know it's not ignorant of it it's just it's like it, it, it's got other things that that it's, it's trying to do and it's about other things so almost kind of protects it from that Mm. That kind it of kind of makes it feel like a fairy tale in a way yeah. as well yeah, um, yeah. Uh, because you know it's almost like this um, bizarre version of Wizard of Oz where they go on this long journey and, and terrible things occur to them at, at each stop and stuff like that uh, and so much so that there's that fantastic sequence of the, the people um, launching balloons into the sky which just feels so out of place yeah. and again it's, it's just highlighting the other of Australia as a whole um, I think that people would have not been aware that that kind of thing was taking place in the outback. 
um, and yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's a, it's a fascinating film to roll over because of that. I, I think coming back to that international perspective and certainly with Wake and Fright as well, I think they're perfect uh, counterparts in a way. Um, we couldn't have made this kind of film. We couldn't have made this kind of uh, deep critical analysis of Australia as a whole and, and seeing it from new eyes. Yeah. Uh, even Michael Powell did with uh, There Are Weird, Weird Mob, which, you know, they're, they're all films that kind of treat Australia as this kind of untapped ground, this, this, you know, this fertile place for stories to be told. And as such, they become even more interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't think we could have told these stories. Yeah. I mean, we've always talked on the podcast about that, um, that fascination of, you know, all that fascinating aspect of film history where so much, mm. so much that kind of becomes synonymous with national cinema is made by people who are not of that nation, you know, kind mm. of coming, coming with a, with an idea and understanding or a preconception and then kind of almost putting it under the microscope. Yeah. One of the positive things about, you know, about Walkabout, which I guess is again, it seems to be one of the reasons why it's kind of not um, immune, but kind of, you know, almost kind of protected is that, you know, it introduces David Gulpalil to, to the world and to, yeah. and to Australia in terms of, and, and, and his significance feels huge in terms of Australian cinema. Um, uh, you know, from 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 an outside point of view. So, just you know, what does he mean to Australian cinema? And you know, you know how how exciting is it, kind of to 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 kind of to sort of to see those changes um, that he's obviously been kind of working for since Walkabout in terms of sort of Indigenous representation. Um, it, it means everything. I mean, I, I, I wasn't lying when I, I I said earlier that I think that he is Australia's greatest actor. Um, he, he's brilliant he's in Walkabout simply, as well. He's like, it's just astonishing performance. Yeah, yeah. And for somebody who'd never acted before and, uh, you know, dealing with that kind of emotional complexity and things like that is just so, so powerful. And getting to hear, uh, you know, Indigenous uh, languages and stuff like that on film is even more important. I think that, you know, international people might be surprised to know that you know, Australia, I urge listeners to kind of do a search for an Indigenous map of Australia. We are made up of, we're made up of a bunch of different states and territories, but um, underneath those states and territories, there are different Indigenous countries where, you know, they all speak different languages. And that in itself is important to be able to have that on film and to hear Indigenous voices on film. And Gulpalil did that throughout his whole entire career. And he still um, is a major, uh, you know, player in today's uh, world and society. Um, unfortunately, uh, he doesn't have long to live. He's got lung cancer. Um, but he is just, he always brings a unique presence to, to the film, uh, regardless of whether it's Walkabout or all the way up to some modern films like Charlie's Country and Ten Canoes are some of the most beautiful um complex and and brilliant films that his performance simply just uh it's one of the things that frustrates me i guess in the sense that australia makes these great films and we have great actors like david gulpulil and because not very many people pay attention to australian film or it doesn't have the cultural uh impact on other countries around the world they don't get to see the great varied work of somebody like David Gulpilil. I, I mean, I know it's not all about awards and stuff like that, but 
for some of his performances, I, I'm shocked that, you know, he doesn't get recognized internationally. Um, it, it, it's a crime. It's a, it's a real shame. Um, but his, his presence in Australian film really made it a lot easier for subsequent actors like Tommy Lewis, who is in the brilliant uh, chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, which is a uh, Bruce Beresford film. And I oh, know, sorry, Fred Skepsi film. Um, and that is a really, really powerful, powerful film. Again, telling a story about indigenous Australians. So uh, there's, there is always a first person uh, and David Goldblum will be Australia's first major one. Uh, yes, the actors of Jeddah are there, but they didn't really go on and to do other stuff. Mm. Whereas David Goldblum um, really forged a, a, a path forward in cinema. And on top of that, like he... He went and danced for the Queen in the 70s, which, you know, not very many Indigenous people were able to travel, let alone go and meet the Queen. Like, for her to recognise that Indigenous Australians exist and uh, it was equally powerful um, because, you know, for so long, Australia has, and it's still seen as kind of this other, this appendage to the UK, this yeah. place where we sent convicts and stuff like that. So to recognize that there were people here before that occurred uh, is really important. Yeah. Yeah. It's worth noting that, you know, he's regarded as, as, uh, as much as a, da- of a dancer, as an actor mm. in Australia as well. So, um, right. Uh, going to wrap it up now. So anything else you wanted to, yeah, wanted to let us know that we should know about walkabout, um, you know, from your, uh, special uh, Australian perspective? Um, I, I just think that while a film like this gets to stand in uh, cultural history and cinema history as being a Nicholas Rogue film, which is an important thing in itself, um, the, the impact that it has, which we've talked about here, uh, is undeniable. And I think that people who are fascinated by this film uh, need to follow the lineage of what occurred after Walkabout because the impact of having a film like this uh, is really, really important. I mean, this played at Cannes Film Festival and things like that. So on a global scale, Australia was on the map and there was a lot talked about the Australian new wave, um, but the impact that a film like Walkabout had in telling these kind of dramas, these personal stories about Australian history is, it's undeniable. And I think that in itself, um, people should use that as a launching pad to seek out other stories that were influenced by it. And easily all the, the you know, we're talking about the, the beautiful cinematography here. All of that had such a major impact on Australian film. That language was created there. One person helped uh, forge what the look of Australian film would be going forward. And you can see it injected into films like Mad Max, you know, these genre films, which have become major staples and stuff like that. But, there are hints of Rogue's work on seeing what Australia looked like in Walkabout that um, was really, really carried through for Australian film as a whole. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's kind of the final thing which I would suggest is that while Walkabout is great, uh, don't take it as the Australian film, uh, take it as the launching pad for Australian film. Yeah. Great. Um, yeah, well, we know where to come for our uh, primer for uh, <laughs> our watch list. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have a, I have a long list of things that I, I, you know, I'm always telling people to check out and watch and stuff like that. And, um, you know, a lot of people come up to me and are like, oh, Walkabout is absolutely fantastic. And what should I watch next? And it's like, and, and I guess the frustrating thing is, is that 
as I mentioned before, decades later is when these kinds of stories were getting told again uh, with films like Sweet Country and Mystery Road and stuff like that. And while they're narratively different than Walkabout, there is still that um, that impact of of Walkabout in those particular films, almost in a way as if the Indigenous filmmakers who are telling those stories are fighting against what Nicholas Rogue set up decades earlier, um, like they're readjusting how Australia is seen from an Indigenous perspective. Yeah. Well, that sounds like another another whole podcast, and uh, yeah, it does. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I do remember that we did Sweet Country as an episode, thanks to your suggestion. Yes. That was a fantastic yeah. introduction to that. So, yeah, and thank you again for that. It 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 does mean a lot to get those kinds of films out, um, uh, you know, and, and make people aware that these kinds of films exist. Uh, I I often say that, you know, from if they were made in Europe, um, they would kind of get a little bit more attention yeah. than they do in Australia. Um, because you know it's in Swedish or something like that it's yeah. it, you know there's it's just it's both uh, infuriating and a little bit like oh you know why can't people see how we make great films <laughs> well yeah you uh I think um well we're doing our bit and um yes thank you thank this you this has been a really great conversation so thanks yeah for joining us on the uh, podcast today well thank you very much So yes, thank you, Andrew, for your time. And yeah, really, really great conversation. Really enjoyed it. Um, and yeah, it feels like a world away now, but uh, hope you're doing well um, in the in, in these times. So yeah, Dario, what did you what did you make of that chat? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because it, again, even Andrew sort of couldn't put his finger on really why what is really ostensibly a white story um, and you know, again, I'm not sure that I agree that that uh, Gilpillow's story is is not one of tragedy or kind of one of tragedy. And the fact that the no matter how much you you could argue that that this is a critique of of sort of Western modernity, you know, particularly sort of English based Western modernity is inherent to the film. And I think that what actually what the film does really well, and I forgot to say this in the middle, was that it shows just how sort of ritualistic and um, constructed the norms of Western society are and, and how, yeah, that's how we, quote yeah. unquote weird they are in the way that, that a sort of Western gaze would, sh- would see maybe ad- Aboriginal culture as being quote unquote weird. You know what I mean? It's, it's putting the weirdness back into Britishness in many ways. But I think, yeah, it's, it's interesting how how Andrew does go back to the sort of the, the the aesthetic idiosyncrasies of the film and how how just sort of you know how they they, they demonstrate a filmmaker um, finding I suppose their 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 style within cinema. So yeah, it was interesting to sort of and and then all the stuff that he's talked about there about the the sort of Australianness of it and and where the money comes from and it is somebody who's coming in with an eye from the outside, but does that allow that person a sort of observational distance that that reveals a truth that somebody who is, you know, of that, you know, of that context maybe doesn't have. And again, I think that that's something that is actually quite a controversial thing to say these days. You know, the idea that somebody could come from the outside and, 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 and reflect something or, 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 um, or show something that maybe if you're in that 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 society or that structure or that identity that you don't 
that you may not be able to. I mean, that it's very, I think a lot of people argue against that quite forcefully these days. Yeah, um, which is strange, isn't it? You know, when you look at cinema history in terms of, yeah. in terms of migration and movement of of voices and, and kind of and filmmakers, either by choice or, you know, by necessity, looking at particularly, you know, um, sort of, yeah, German and Australian, uh, sorry, if you look at German and Austrian emigres in Hollywood in the 30s, and then you look at the blacklisted directors like Jules Dassin in the 50s, kind of moving to, to London and, and Paris. And yeah, you know, in an age where so many people are arguing for freedom of movement um, and greater... Yeah you know, sort of greater sort of lessening of borders, physical borders. Um, but at the same time, it's it's it, it's it's very restrictive and conservative in terms of how you how you kind of conceive of what stories to tell, which I think is again really interesting. And what I find interesting as well is like that that Rogue can make films that are so specifically tied to a place while also being completely rogue films. You know, like yeah, I think yeah. it's interesting hearing Andrew talk about you know, walk about as an Australian film, which it which it is. You know, it's it's undeniably an Australian film in so many ways, but it's also a British film um, in terms of you know what we talked about in the middle. But and it's also a rogue film, and he he does with the with the Australian outback what he does with Venice, what he does with the US, what he does with Paris in Bad Time, what he did with London really in performance, and 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 mm. and really get under the the, the 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 surface layer of a place to really kind of unlock some themes for characters and, and what he hopes the audience feels, um, which I think, you know, you look at that run of films, that's, I don't know of another filmmaker who's who's worked in as many different places and made every place really, really kind of burned into the retina of those images and the way that you experience the film um, and really feel like you're in those places, be that the vast expanse of the Australian outback or those kind of Venice corridors. Um, I think it's remarkable, really. Yeah, yeah, and you know, just I mean, I know it's it's kind of an obvious thing to say, but just the the look of it, the 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 exteriors and the, the textuality of the film, and how it captures the Australian outback, and even just the sort of way he uses these long crossfades, which is not something you see a lot these days. It's either the you know, it's a, a dip to black or a, or a hard cut are the two go to options with contemporary filmmaking, but long crossfades and sort of any and the long cross fade faded zoom as well is is seen as a signifier i think of sort of over direction these days but it just seems to capture that you know parched heat of wandering through the outback you know desperate and hallucinating mm. and you know it, it just sort of aesthetically captures that so so brilliantly and and obviously the the kind of score and the switch between the types of score really you know underpin again i think that feeling when you're watching yeah absolutely yeah that stock the stockhausen stuff is is fantastic yeah. um but yeah also time as well you know the way the edits yeah. kind of convey the, uh, the the passing and the amount of time you know is is really yeah kind of stunning um you feel like these characters spent a long meaningful time in this space which obviously for the for jenny agatha's character you just think like all of that time and nothing has kind of gone in or has unconsciously gone in. It's too late, you know? Um, yeah. Beautifully, beautifully constructed. Um, I do love the, yeah, the kind of the crossfade from the wall to the outback at the start, which is a famous cut, you know, that, we, but it's just, 
you know, just the vision of that, you know, like, okay, yeah, yeah, this yeah, is, yeah. Yeah. we're in for something else here, you know, which is, which is so exciting. Um, you know, when we talked to Katie Breyer about the idea of invisible editing and, you know, yeah. you watch stuff like that and you're like, you're in the hands of someone who's going to, you know, is going to take you on a journey cinematically. And, that, and it, that's what the film is. It's a, an amazing cinematic journey. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and again, you know, if, if any, if any, uh, of our listeners do watch the film and have got particular opinions about some of the more, you know, controversial stuff perhaps that we've that we've talked about. Then you know we're happy to hear what people have got to say or think think about that because it's not, you know, as you can tell from our conversation, it's not something that we're we've kind of decided on. <laughs> you know what I mean in that way. Um, yeah, please don't cancel us yeah, yeah. <laughs> for talking about walkabout. <laughs> no. um, yeah, please don't. But I, I think we'll be all right. I think I think the uh, our listeners know where we're coming from. Um, Good stuff. So well done, well done you for uh, sorting that out. That was uh, really good and nice to sort of revisit. Um, again, you know, it's it's always an interesting question which film to revisit of somebody who is, you know, of, of that particular period and has a body of work and, you know, sort of man, man who fell to earth and performs and stuff are, are, are sort of easy go-tos, aren't they? But th- this, I think, is an intriguing, an intriguing film. I think it has an intriguing place, yeah. Um, and... Yeah, I think that's a, that's an interesting point because obviously it's if we were to sit down and make a list of films and filmmakers, would this be the rogue film yeah. that I would necessarily talk about? Probably not. But what's you know what's great about the you know, particularly the anniversary reissues, you know, is that is that the way we put the shows together, these things drop and you go actually, you know, yeah, I could do with watching Walkabout again. I'd love to see a beautiful restoration of it. Um, and kind of get into it, and the package that I think that that's been put together for this re-release is is wonderful. You know, really great features, lots of really good stuff on there. So kind of sometimes it's nice to not go to the obvious ones, and I think that the there's a lot to talk about here. Maybe because the reverence for it is that that you know is is, is not as high it would be for something like Don't Look Now or or performance. Um, so yeah, I think that's it's always nice to to mix up what we're talking about so it's not always the obvious that definitely gives us more mileage to get into the into the weeds of it certainly yeah a very valid point when when it comes to the fact that we're not quite sure about what the the next episode is uh, going to be just yet in terms of when we decide what we're what we're putting out we have got lots in the pipeline but it's just a case of when in- interviews happen and uh, when we're able to um sit down and, and do the the intro and outro recordings but so unfortunately, we can't trail the next episode, but it will return very soon. Uh, Neil, anything to to add to finish off? No. Um, yeah. If uh, if by the time um, we finish recording, it's all gone to hell, then please let us know what we should cover in the next episode. Um, and also, yeah, check out the Gweno track uh, if it's available for sale. Buy it. Uh, support Gweno um, as an extra thank you to to her for, for doing the theme tune but otherwise no this has been great to talk to you as ever um thanks to our guests and yeah thanks to everyone for listening from my point of view yeah thanks to all of the guests who have been on to to andrew and to luke and thanks to gweno and uh, everyone involved with the production of our theme thanks to you the listeners you can contact us in the usual places on twitter on facebook at cinematologist at gmail.com on email and if you do have a few quid per month just to help us out with our running costs we would really appreciate that please visit the patreon page and our most recent newsletter has just gone up with loads of recommendations this has been the cinematologist podcast thanks for listening